Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. There's a saying that everyone's Irish on St. Patrick's Day, and that seems to be especially true in Chicago. With its large Irish population, the city is awash in green-themed celebrations, including parades on the south side, north side, and downtown. Even the river is swept up in the revelry. The tradition of Chicago celebrating Ireland's patron saint dates all the way back to 1843, when the city hosted the first St. Patrick's Day parade for its budding population of just over 7,500. In the 180 years since that first parade, Chicago St. Patrick's celebrations have become an annual tradition, with only a few exceptions. Most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic canceled festivities, but back in 1890, it was something far more nefarious. It's the beginning of kind of what becomes known as yellow journalism and kind of tabloid journalism and sensational reporting. So it's everywhere. In this special holiday edition of Courier Pigeon, we explore Chicago's history of Irish secret societies by following a lesser known tale of two men, Patrick Cronin and Alexander Sullivan. We'll also delve into how Irish Chicagoans have celebrated this holiday across the generations. I'm Mai Martinez, and this is Courier Pigeon. St. Patrick's Day is celebrated in hundreds of countries around the world. Despite cultural differences and language barriers, somehow the carefree fun and enjoyment of this holiday is universal. But many revelers don't know much about St. Patrick himself. So we asked Dr. Gillian O'Brien, a reader in modern Irish history at Liverpool John Moores University, to break it down for us. The story of St. Patrick is that he brings Christianity to Ireland. That's not strictly true from a historical perspective, but he brings Christianity. He doesn't bring Catholicism or Protestantism. And given kind of the troubles in Ireland that often pitched two different Christian factions against each other, there was a certain unity, you know, something unifying about having just a Christian saint, which was neither Catholic nor Protestant. Dr. O'Brien lives across the pond, but she's done extensive research in Chicago about the city's early Irish settlers. The Great Famine in Ireland in the 1840s prompted a mass exodus of its people. Many settled in cities across America, including Chicago. Longing for a taste of home, some of those settlers organized Chicago's first St. Patrick's Day parade, which was held on March 17, 1843. It's very early um, that they have begun to have um, parades, but not parades in the way that we would know them. It, they have what were referred to primarily as picnics. 
uh, where there'd be a bit of a parade, but it was mostly sort of an outdoor. And again, the word picnic isn't really about you bringing your, you know, your own little picnic and sitting down, but it's it's kind of a bigger day, like like kind of a fair. So they do have those from the 1840s onwards, and they become much more formalized by the time you get to the 1870s, 1880s, where they are organized by particular societies um, and generally then as fundraisers. But yeah, there is an awareness and a presence of St. Patrick's Day in Chicago from very early on when there's not very when there are very few Irish. Dr. O'Brien was born and raised in Ireland. But during a trip to visit a friend in San Francisco, she spent three days in Chicago and found herself drawn to the city. There was something about Chicago that I just went, I really want a reason to come back here. So um, I applied to for a fellowship at the Newbury Library, which is the most fantastic place to work. She was at the Newbury for a month, scouring through 19th century newspapers to see how the Irish were represented in those times, when one story caught her eye. I kept coming across this murder that had taken place in Chicago in the 1880s. And I said, this is just fascinating murder. And I thought, well, I should really read a book about that. And then I went to look for a book and saw that nobody had actually written a book about it, except at the time that when it happened, but nobody had written a recent book about it. So um, I applied to the Fulbright Commission and said, I have this idea for a book. And they said, here's some money. And the Newbury Library said, uh, you can come and hang out with us for a year. The book is titled Blood Runs Green, The Murder That Transfixed Gilded Age Chicago. WBBM podcast producer Ariel Ravenet talked with Dr. O'Brien to hear the story. For historical context, in the 1800s, rebellions rose across Ireland as its people revolted against British rule. Safe from harm, those who settled in Chicago sought ways to help their countrymen. Dr. O'Brien explains. What happens is um, in the Chicago of the 1880s and, and later, you have a lot of the Irish settling around Bridgeport in, in the south. Um, and it tends to be that as people in that area get wealthier, they tend to move north. Lawyers and things like that, they tend to sort of moving up to kind of really around where you know, the Gold Coast kind of is today. There isn't that much division in the 1880s because what you have in Chicago is this group called Clan the Gael, which means sort of the family of the Irish or the family of the Gael. And they're mostly united, um, though in every Irish sort of secret society, there's always division and people jostling for, for various uh, attention. But they become involved. Their purpose is initially to fundraise in America and send that money back to Ireland where there's a kind of fight for Irish freedom. But they're not supposed to be doing any of that fight. They're supposed to be the ones bringing the money for the fight to happen either in Ireland or, or in Britain. And this is very simplifying it a lot, but they get fed up with nothing happening. And so some of them decide that actually they, they need to take action. And there is then a big split in Chicago particularly between those who want to actually run bombing campaigns themselves and that's a group led by a very influential lawyer called Alexander Sullivan whose wife is also a very influential journalist in Chicago at the time. So he wants there to be bombing campaigns and he gets behind trying to blow up places in London like you know, the Houses of Parliament, London Bridge. They're not very successful because in every Irish secret society, there are spies. And so 
generally the British government knows what's happening. But the whole purpose of what they're trying to do is really controversial. So some of those in Chicago are totally opposed to that because they think that that's not their purpose, that's not what they should be doing, and also that they're actually risking civilian lives. And that's not part of what, you know, there are legitimate targets, but civilians like blowing up the London Underground is targeting civilians and they're not happy with that. So you get this split then in Chicago and that ultimately goes on to become a much bigger split. And it comes to a head in the 1880s when this guy, Alexander Sullivan, he's quite good friends with the Catholic Archbishop, the first Catholic Archbishop of Chicago. And generally speaking, the church kind of is not massively in favour of this use of violence. Um, but his mate is kind of like, yeah, you can kind of do what you like in Chicago. So Chicago becomes kind of the wing of the most virulently kind of pro-violence because they're not being put down by the church. But one of those opposed to Sullivan and his use of violence is a guy called Patrick Henry Cronin, and he's a medical doctor in Chicago, also a member of the same secret society, but he doesn't like the, this use of violence in this particular way. He's not that he's necessarily opposed to violence, but just how they're doing it. Um, and he starts calling out Sullivan and you know, says Sullivan is not only is he using violence, but he's also embezzled funds that were meant to go to Ireland and didn't go to Ireland and creates kind of this big ruckus within the Irish American community in Chicago. Now, you know, this is not sort of something that everyone knows. This is within this own group. He then gets expelled from that group and there's a big kerfuffle. And then suddenly it all goes silent because he disappears. And he goes missing on the 4th of May, 1889. He goes missing. He's a medical doctor, so he gets called out uh, to go to a, an incident in an ice house in Lakeview, which is way up north uh, in, in Chicago. And uh, it's not even part of the city at the time. He gets called out there and he's never seen again. Now, they pass about 90 doctors between. So he's not the closest doctor. So there's, it's all like, why would they call to him? Anyway, his friends call the police. The police say, look, you know, middle-aged single man in Chicago, should they go missing all the time? Maybe he was having an affair and he had to leave, you know, rapidly. All sorts of reasons why he might have to leave without telling anyone. So they sort of give a half-hearted look and kind of go, what's the point? No point in looking for this man. He's entitled to go anywhere he wants. And eventually, two weeks after he goes missing, uh, a detective called Dan Coughlin calls a press conference and all the newspapers gather and he says, look, we've looked for him. We can't find him. The case is essentially closed. You know, off you go. Find other things to talk about. And the very next day, um, two public workers um, discover the body of a naked, beaten man in a sewer. And they pull out the body and it's Cronin. So this obviously becomes a, the, the newspapers sort of run with this story. Extra, extra, read all about it. And the police now have to obviously investigate a murder and they start to arrest people. And the very first person they arrest and charge with the murder of Cronin is the detective Daniel Coughlin, who was charged with looking for him in the first place. And then it turns out that Daniel Coughlin, plus a number of other people uh, who they arrest and charge with the murder, were part of the same group, the same faction of Clan Nagale that Alexander Sullivan was in charge of. 
and Alexander Sullivan was the person who'd fallen out with Patrick Henry Cronin. So the newspapers just, you know, it's not just Chicago newspapers, it's every English language newspaper. It's illustrations in things like Judge and Puck, all about the murder. Because it happens at that time where you begin, it's the beginning of kind of what becomes known as yellow journalism and kind of tabloid journalism and sensational reporting. So it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. It's so much so the dye museums in Chicago, they have waxworks of the dead man. They've got waxworks of the accused. They've the whole storyboard there. Cronin's funeral, when it happens towards the end of May, is the biggest funeral Chicago's seen since Abraham Lincoln's funeral cortege came through the city. About 40,000 people lined Michigan Avenue to see his body being brought to Holy Name Cathedral. And then another 20,000 went down to the train station where they put him on board a train to bring him up to uh, Calvary Cemetery in Evanston. So it's massive. It's one of the biggest stories. So the murder is huge and it, it shines a light on a secret society. You know, no secret society wants its business, you know, across the pages of national and international newspapers. It's a huge, huge story. And eventually, at the end of the trial, um, three men are found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. The public are not happy with this. They wanted the death penalty. Everyone thought that these men were guilty. One of the jurors uh, held out and wouldn't vote for the death penalty. And he gets run out of Chicago. Like he can't stay in Chicago because he gets so many threats against him. Alexander Sullivan doesn't stand trial because like, you know, he didn't do it, but everyone believes that it was on his orders. So his career ends up going down the toilet. The police look like they're terribly corrupt, given you know that one of their own is jailed for murder. There was a jury bribing uh, case as part of this. So the judiciary look like they're corrupt and in the pockets of the Irish. And that's the reason why the year after all of this happens, there is no St. Patrick's Day parade or no St. Patrick's Day picnic or no St. Patrick's Day anything because the Irish reputation in Chicago is so tarnished by what had happened during the previous year. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This sinister and scandalous chain of events impacted more than just the St. Patrick's Day Parade that year in Chicago. Nationally, the tide of American support for the Irish cause started shifting. There had been quite a lot of support in the United States at government level for kind of the Irish cause, because there were a lot of votes in that. Once Cronin is murdered, it's like, hang on, this is happening in our country. These are the Irish who are essentially taking their Irish fight, but they're doing it on American soil. And that's not good. And so you find that like where they had been able to raise quite a lot of money, that essentially all falls apart until kind of 
or into the 20th century. So that happens in the kind of 1889. And it's not until really after 1916 that it, when there's a, an Easter rising in Ireland that takes place in Dublin, primarily, uh, that money comes back. Once word spread about the darker side of Clan Nagale, remaining members started questioning what the organization really stood for. Irish would have not seen themselves as the same as, say, the Italian mobs because they felt they had a, a political kind of reason for, for doing what they were doing. I mean, the impacts that the murder had while across Chicago was so significant because a lot of men joined them partly because they saw it as a fraternal organization in their heads, are not a free Ireland was a good thing but actually they were joining because their neighbor was a member or it was a way to get a job or a way to get a house but when the murder happened they were like oh hang on we didn't want to be involved in you know having blood on our hands so they all drop off and they're you know they stop being kind of as much and a lot of those quite a few of those go into kind of labor organizations instead irish americans have made up a significant portion of labor unions throughout american history and still do today. That's especially true in Chicago, where their influence is clear in many aspects of the city and its culture, including St. Patrick's Day celebrations. Since 1962, members of the Chicago Journeyman Plumbers Local Union 130 UA have been in charge of dyeing a portion of the Chicago River green with a dye that was originally used to find underwater leaks in sewage pipes. As the story goes, Old Man Daly called up Tom Rowan, a police marine in charge of patrol boats, and asked if he could get the job done. Tom brought his friend Mike Butler and their children on the first river dive back in 1962. And more than 60 years later, their children carry on their tradition along with members of Local 130. I'm really happy for them that they enjoy it. become a brand, just like, you know, Mardi Gras. 180 years after that first St. Patrick's Day parade in Chicago, the city's population has grown from 7,500 to a whopping 2.7 million. And like the city, the holiday also evolved. I think the in the early days, I mean, most of those who would have been attending were either immediately from Ireland, having been born there and, emig and emigrated to the States, or they were the children of people who had a very close kind of tie. And I guess it was a way of keeping that community alive and, uh, you know, an annual event where they would all meet. And also when, at the very early stages, we're talking about quite small numbers of, peop of people in that community. So, you know, they would have all, to a large extent, have known each other or know, known relatives of each other. I mean, as it expands in the 20th century, I think it becomes a more commercial uh, thing and it, and people are more and more distanced from Ireland itself. So an awful lot of people participating will have never been to Ireland. Um, and it becomes kind of, I, I think the American way of commemorating St. Patrick's Day is kind of a thing unto itself, you know, that has become separate really from what the original bits of it were and it's become sort of an Irish American thing rather than necessarily an Irish thing. Despite the commercialization that Dr. O'Brien mentioned, some traditions from the old country live on. We spoke with Chicagoans at the Irish American Heritage Center about how they celebrate the holiday. We 
have been involved with our girls with Irish dance. Drinking whiskey. I love whiskey. I don't really like Irish whiskey, but I do love peated Irish whiskey, and they make one right now called Connemara, so that's my uh, my St. Patty's Day drink of choice. Yeah. It means getting in physical and emotional, mental shape to do all the gigs, <laughs> which means money and uh, fun. And so, yeah, um, I'm with the group, the Boyles, and and uh, we do a lot of playing, you know? It's like Christmas time for an Irish musician. We have stops that we make. We go to our old parish corned beef and cabbage dinner. For me, it means uh, having family things together. It's, it's just a, it's a great holiday to celebrate being Irish. It's a great holiday to spend time with the kids. It's just fun. It's fun to be with family. St. Patrick's Day may have started as a holiday for Irish Christians to celebrate their patron saint and cherish their family and homeland. But along the way, much of the world began to embrace it, evolving into the holiday we know today. WBBM podcast producer Jim Hankey spoke with Meg Buchanan, the executive director of the Irish American Heritage Center in Chicago, about what makes this holiday special to so many. You know what? It's fun. It's just a fun holiday for all ages. It's fun because there's costumes and music. So the littlest family members can get in touch with it. And even if you're not Irish, all generations have grown up celebrating St. Patrick's Day now. Who knows why it has taken such a huge national hold. But I know that Um, In the big cities in particular, there were so many Irish immigrants, you know, and and they started celebrating it within the community. But as their influence on city governments uh, expanded and they became more accepted by the rest of America, you know, they they brought it to everyone. I just think it's, you know, a hundred or so years of repetition It's the party for everybody. It's very welcoming. Thanks for listening to this special holiday episode of WBBM Courier Pigeon, our newest podcast. Subscribe to us on the Odyssey app, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to see newspaper clippings and other visuals from the events in this episode, check out WBBM Podcasts on Instagram and Twitter. WBBM Courier Pigeon is an original podcast production. It's hosted by Mai Martinez, produced and edited by Ariel Ravenet, Jim Hankey, and Lizzie Baumgartner, written by Mai Martinez and Ariel Ravenet. Reporting for this episode was done by Ariel Ravenet and Jim Hankey, with editorial direction by Mai Martinez and Lizzie Baumgartner. Additional audio by Dalal Orfali. A special thanks to the Old Town School of Folk Music for playing some of the music heard throughout this episode, and to Dr. Jillian O'Brien for sharing her research. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Ariel Ravenet's mother, Jennifer Guidry. Thanks for listening to WBBM Courier Pigeon. I'm Mai Martinez, and may the luck of the Irish enfold you. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? 
Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.